The following program originally appeared on Tor.com and is being resyndicated here by io9. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, I'm David Barr Kirtley. And this is John Joseph Adams. Okay, welcome everyone to the first episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. This is, uh, you can tell your grandkids you are here for this. Uh, we've got a great show for you today. We'll be interviewing Chet Balasek from Valve Software, a lead writer on Left 4 Dead 2. And we'll just be talking about zombies and video games. Um, and the end of the world. And the end of the world. Um, so that's all, all coming up just a bit later on the show. Uh, we're going to start out by talking about Valve software for folks maybe who aren't gamers, who don't know how, how special they are and how awesome and uh, why we're so excited to have uh, Chad on the show today. So, so Valve software really came to prominence uh, with uh, Half-Life, which was just a really exciting, groundbreaking game when it came out. The story of Half-Life was very similar to Doom, which had been a big hit before that. But really, the only way you would know what the story of Doom was is if you had read the instructions manual, because <laughs> um, there was really no other way you would know. I mean, the, the instruction manual talked about scientists at a top-secret facility on Mars' moon Phobos doing experiments with interdimensional transportation, and they inadvertently rip a dimensional portal into hell, and demons start streaming out. But in the actual game, you never saw any scientists or equipment opening up portals or, or anything like that. Essentially, you start the game and you turn around a corner and you're shooting guys. I was just going to say, you know, I think, Dave, the problem is that you see, but you do not observe. Obviously, there are all kind of clues throughout Doom to clue you in on all that backstory. And clearly, you're just not paying close enough attention. Oh, okay. okay, okay, perspicacious one. What are, uh, <laughs> what are some of these clues? Actually, I just made that up. <laughs> That's not true at all. You're, you're totally right about that. Okay. And and so it was was interesting that really what Valve did with Half-Life is essentially tell the same story, but actually introduce it in such a way that you knew that that's what the story was. Uh, I mean, in Half-Life, it's you probably play the game for 10 minutes or so, so before you actually shoot anybody. Uh, it, it starts out with this very cinematic opening where you're riding this monorail that, that kind of takes you through the lab facility. And so you sort of see some of the areas that you'll be exploring later in the game. So what's happening is it's your first day of work, and you're the new guy. And there's sort of a recorded voice on this monorail making announcements about things that are going on at the lab. And so in, immediately it feels like a real place. And, you know, you kind of go in the front door and you meet some of your coworkers and they show you around and you get your equipment and you take part in this experiment. Then they inadvertently rip a portal through to another dimension and, and sort of aliens start coming out and, and killing everybody. And then the fun begins. Uh, but but it feels so much more real because you've sort of been grounded in, in the reality of, of this uh, environment. And they made some really interesting choices in, in presenting the world. One, one thing they did is that there are no cutscenes. In a lot of games, you would have a cutscene where you would stop playing for a while and you would watch your character having a conversation or whatever. And in Half-Life, the game never stops. That People walk up to you and they talk to you and sort of scripted events in the game happen. And if you're not looking in the right direction, you might miss them. Um, another kind of interesting thing they did is that your character never talks. So I, I assume they did that so that you don't hear somebody else's voice 
that's supposed to be you. You know, you're like, that's not my voice. That's not what I sound like. It, it feels like it's you there. For Left 4 Dead 1, they kind of do something similar, all, although it's a little bit different. Um, they uh, open with this movie that loads when, uh, when you pop the game in, and it basically shows you how to play the game. Because Left 4 Dead has zombies, which are like, you know, sort of regular zombies as we think of zombies, but it's also got these things they call special infected, which are these sort of super zombies, but they all have these different abilities. Like one is a tank, it's called the tank, and so it's sort of this big, huge hulking thing, and it will, you know, throw cars at you and beat you to a pulp with its fist. Um, and there's one called a smoker, which has like a long tongue that will shoot out and lasso you and strangle you uh, while your friends uh, have to try to help free you. And there's one called a hunter that sort of pounces and, and then you need your friend's help. But throughout the movie, they just sort of show all these things happening to the survivors from like a third person point of view. And so as you watch this little opening movie, which is no more than two minutes long or so, you, you basically learn everything you need to know about the game. One of their other games, uh, Portal, it's a puzzle game within um, using a first person shooter um, like game engine. So like you basically have to figure out how to get through a level by using these portals. Like you have this gun that fires portals. And so you fire a portal on one wall. The next portal you fire will open up like sort of an interdimensional portal between those two places. So you walk through one wall and you come out on the other one where the other portal was. So you basically, that's your tool that you have in the game. And you have to use that to get, get past all the levels. And there's all these mechanical things that are trying to kill you. And, and when you mentioned puzzles, I mean, there were a lot of puzzles in Half-Life 2 that really took advantage of the game's advanced physics engine. I mean, that was really the distinctive thing. Uh, there, there was this gun called the Grav Gun, where you could use it to pick up essentially any object in the game and fire it away from you at high velocity. And if, say if you were to shoot uh, one of the supports of a bridge, the whole bridge might collapse in a realistic manner. And, and when you listen to us talk about Valve, you know, you just listen to the games we mentioned, right? Half-Life, Half-Life 2, Portal, Left 4 Dead. There's not a single weak link in their catalog. I think it's worth mentioning about Valve, too. One of the things that I've always uh, appreciated about them is that they, they really put a, a strong emphasis on good writing in the video games. Like, for instance, Mark Laidlaw is, like, I, I believe he's like the credited like creator of Half-Life. And, uh, you know, he was a, a science fiction fantasy writer, you know, long before he'd be, or I don't know, maybe he was doing it simultaneously, but I mean, he was certainly known as a science fiction fantasy writer before he became known as the creator of Half-Life. So w whether or not the person working on the game is uh, like, you know, an established writer or not, they obviously care very much about the story in their game. And for the audience of Tor.com, who obviously like reads a lot of books and, uh, and likes movies and story and so forth, uh, I think it's worth pointing out that like, you know, even if you're not much of a gamer, like you can probably appreciate a lot of these Valve games because of that emphasis on story they have. I guess when, you, when you're talking about Portal, it occurs to me that Portal started out as a third party mod that some, some students, as I understand it, had programmed in the essential mechanics and, and Valve saw that and, and said, wow, that's, that's really cool. Let's make a retail product out of this. The sort of third-party mod community has been really important in the development of, of Valve's products. I, I heard that, uh, you know, um, Counter-Strike was uh, a sort of counterterrorism first-person shooter, was a mod of the Half-Life engine originally. And I guess one of the things, you know, people started programming bots, uh, you know, artificially intelligent opponents. And so one of the mods someone made, you're, you have guns and your opponents are all hordes of terrorists with knives and they all just come at you. It's a sort of last stand kind of thing where you just have to try to hold out against these hordes of enemies. And mm -hmm. the Valve looked at that mod and said, wow, that's great. Mm -hmm. You know, let's do something like that. And that, that's where the essential mechanic of Left 4 Dead came from. 
Yeah, actually, uh, there's something similar to that in Left 4 Dead where they have different modes of the game. Like, you know, the typical mode is you have four survivors trying to survive the zombie apocalypse, right? And if you're playing by yourself, you have three AI teammates. Um, if you're playing online with your friends, um, you know, then you can have four human teammates or three human teammates and four people total, including you. But there's another mode called survival mode, um, which you're not trying to survive the mission. You're not like trying to get from point A to point B, which is the how the typical game works. But in survival mode, it just puts you in one of the one of the scenario locations and you and your buddies, you just have to survive against the clock for as long as possible. And like so the, the hordes of zombies just never stop coming. It's like they just keep coming and coming and coming and you will die. You will. You definitely will because there's no winning this. It's just you're playing against the clock. And it's like that's such a cool, innovative thing to put in the game. And it's surprisingly addictive. Like, you know, I've, I've played it online with uh, friends a couple times and it's like and we'll and, and we've done it just like over and over. Like, it's like, oh, come on. We, we did so well that time. And it's like, you know, we, we're so close to breaking our, our record. All right. And so I guess it's now time to introduce our guest. Um, our interview uh, this week is uh, Chet Balasek, uh, a game designer with uh, Valve Software. Um, he's the lead writer on Left 4 Dead and Left 4 Dead 2. And so let's get Chet on the phone. Hello. Hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hello, guys. Thanks for joining us on the show. So first of all, could you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what's your background, and what were you doing before starting at Valve? So uh, me and uh, Eric Wolpach had started a gaming kind of website called Buff Our Old Man Murray, and we had done that, and then we'd actually gone freelance writing for some magazines and websites, as well as uh, Eric had done a stint at Double Fine, and then Valve in 2004 uh, contacted us and asked us if we wanted to come out here and work, and it was really that simple. We we had known them for a long time, since they first released Half-Life, and had traded emails back and forth for a long time. And in fact, at one point, we had a smack alias with them where they could just send us hateful email, and we would reply. And so it, it was kind of a long-running relationship with Valve. So what what's your writing process like there? I mean, do you have script meetings? I mean, is there even a script? Uh, how does that work? We actually do most of the writing in a database because it's 10,000 lines. A traditional script starts falling apart there, and especially we like to take our writing right from the written word to the um, studio to record it, and then that also lives in we understand where it's being played, when it's being played, how it's being played, and when we need to do things like generate closed caption, we can do it right from that same file. We can also, um, when we need to send it off to localizers, we can do it in that file, and they can send it back to us in a file that we can just easily hook up. Are you involved with your recording? I mean, are you present for that? Oh, yeah, yeah. If uh, the Kind of the rule is if you write it or if you're going to animate it, you're in those sessions. Uh, could you talk about Left 4 Dead? Um, how did that come about and what was your role on the project? For Left 4 Dead 1, there was a company called Turtle Rock, which had kind of come up with the beginning nugget of the game. And I had expressed uh, interest in it with uh, Gabe Newell, the owner of the Valve, and he's just like, we'll go work on it. We're real loose that way. You can kind of pick what you want to work on. And even though they weren't at the time a Valve, product. He was fine with me working on it. Over the course of that, I took kind of on more and more responsibility and became one of the project leads, and we eventually purchased Turtle Rock and Left 4 Dead. So besides just writing, I had some other duties underneath there. And then Left 4 Dead 2, it kind of continued on in that way. Uh, Tom Leonard actually led the project, and I filled in in some other ways. At Valve, you rarely just do one thing. Everybody, it's not like I'm saying, like, oh, I did all this crazy stuff. Everybody really contributes in a multitude of ways. 
So like what other roles besides writer do you fulfill? Well, you sit in like in character creation, world creation, um, with the level designers, with gameplay, um, you know, all the way from new monsters to how the level's going to work out. Equally, the level designers are also thinking in story terms and coming back with ideas. The artists, the same thing as we kind of flush out the world. So you do kind of game designer stuff? Yeah, everybody. We don't have game designers at Valve. Everybody's a game designer. When you play the game, is there a material that you wrote when one of the characters says a line and you say, hey, that's my line? The weird process is um, with 10,000 lines and I've written the bulk of them, I don't... It, Valve, Valve's a place where you, you learn not to worry about standing up and yelling, this is me, this is me. <laughs> and honestly, by the end of the process, I really can't tell most of the time just because um, it's a long process. It's a lot of lines, it's a lot of being in the character and thinking about them where, where the lines don't seem as written as just being part of who that person is. And, you know, you go back and forth, and there's other writers that weigh in on the project as well. Uh, Jay Pinkerton and Eric Wolpaw helps with Love for Dead 2. And, you know, it really becomes this thing of by the time the lines that get in the game, since I also hook up the audio and kind of play editor on that side of it, I, it's hard for me to discern what lines are mine and which aren't. Uh, so what are some of the games that, in your opinion, have the best writing? Outside of Valve games. Mm -hmm. The Modern Warfare series, I actually, I, you know, I really, really like kind of what they do there of just kind of taking a Jerry Bruckheimer film and letting you play it and letting you experience these really kind of big, meaty roles. GTA 4, um, while I thought there was a weird mix of the seriousness of the beginning of the game versus the world that you still lived in was this kind of comical world, I really like some of the stuff they did in there. I play a lot of games that's whatever I've been playing recently that I'm going to think about the most. Definitely, there's been other games, like I thought what Irrational did with Bioshock was really interesting. So, you know, John and I both work in, in book publishing, so I think we're just kind of curious if you have any favorite authors or if there are any authors who are popular around the office there. Um, well, well, around the office, there's, there's a million different people. One of the things, just for the Left 4 Dead world, was kind of influential, was um, I just finished reading The Road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And re really liked the lack of just world background, of just being thrust into that and not caring, and just kind of really liking and rolling with it. Um, and that's something with Lufford had one that kind of really pushed through to have, where we weren't going to give the players any knowledge of what was going on. I mean, it was zombie apocalypse. Okay, you know, they've gotten their head some version of what that means, but not to tell it out, not to tell them the backstory of the infection or the backstory of the characters or any of that, but really just kind of just pick it up and run with it. Do you have any advice for listeners who want to write for video games? Just don't think video games are movies or that video games, I just used the modern warfare example, but they're their own thing. They can tell story in their own way. If you look at early Twilight Zone, they were really slow and almost painful with how they dealt with plot because the TV viewing audience wasn't that sophisticated back then, right? So they kind of had to really paint everything out for everybody. And they had to tell it in a very slow format where Video game players are really smart. They're really smart at digesting stories in, in little snippets or through the world. They're not even being told explicitly things. That's definitely something we embrace here of thinking that we don't have to be super explicit about things. We can plant seeds of things. We can give little payoffs. We can give little hints in the world that you passively can pick up or choose to ignore. And so the, for the people who do want more story, they're able to find it in the world without having it be explicitly told through cutscenes or some other way. And, you know, I think... 
as we look forward for games, I think the, the worst examples you see are people who try to say, we're going to make this a movie and you're going to have a movie-like experience instead of saying, this is a video game. This medium has a different thing it can do for you. Even as much as we tell story in our game, the best stories are going to be actually just empowering friends to tell stories to their friends about, hey, you know, we were playing last night and Dave got smokered right as we were getting into the escape vehicle and, you know, and they retell that story. And that's a hell of a lot better story than I'm going to write. And I don't want to impede on them either with that, with breaking up the gameplay and all of that. Games offer this really good shared experience that you don't see in other mediums. And it's kind of embracing that and pushing that further is what interests me. I'm not interested in, you know, I don't grab a book and go, oh, there's not enough moving pictures in here. I want to make it a movie. But yet people do that with video games where they want to make it another medium instead of embracing the medium that it is. One of the new things in Left 4 Dead 2 is the addition of melee weapons. I was wondering how difficult yeah. was it to implement that into the existing game, and how much did the playtester cackle with delight the first time they sliced a zombie in half with a katana? So we started with that by redesigning the entire weapon system, because we wanted to make sure that the look and feel of all the weapons were cool and also easy for us to expand so we can keep adding to that, because we found out the minute we put in the first melee weapon that it was really cool feeling, and... Mm -hmm. With that, we were going to want to be able to do more, so we ended up delivering 10 melee weapons. We kind of stopped there because we wanted each to have a unique feel and different characteristics to that. But yeah, the first time actually is the frying pan. The first time you mm -hmm. smack something in the head with a frying pan, even before we had everything down right where it felt perfect, it still felt really good. Yeah, frying pan's still my uh, ringtone on my phone. <laughs> so that was partially just not just even the action, but the sound and everything about it. And when we first showed it at E3, even, I don't think we kind of quite had it, everything pulled together right to make them really feel right. And, and you know, obviously by the time we, we shipped, we had gotten that down for the 10 we shipped with, where I think they all feel really good. And it ties into the gore system. If we didn't have the new gore system where you can chop off arms and legs and decapitate people, it wouldn't have felt nearly as good. So there's a lot of different pieces pulled together that in the final product, when you do swing a katana and chop someone up, it feels good. Speaking of the katanas, why are there so many freaking katanas in that mall? And uh, why are there so many cans full of gas in the mall? It's good to know that if there's a zombie apocalypse, you know, we're going to be, you know, very well stocked with, you know, weapons all over the place and lots and lots of gas. It was very convenient in that scenario. Well, you may have not noticed the katana splash gas can store. <laughs> and where's spread across the mall. Yeah, I, I wish there was a, a store like that in my mall, you know, because, I mean, I could use a katana now and then. Uh, has there been, uh, you are talking about the story uh, in Left 4 Dead a little earlier, and, uh, you know, has there been any, any interest in uh, from Hollywood in the franchise? Because uh, with the sort of improved narrative that you've uh, implemented in Left 4 Dead 2, where you sort of have this one scenario leading into the other, you kind of have a script already written. So, I mean, has Hollywood come calling? I think Hollywood wants to option everything. I think, <laughs> I think they, 10 bucks says they, the creator of Tetris they optioned for a movie. Our interest isn't in that. Our interest is in creating our own worlds and fleshing them out in the ways we want to and interacting with the community at that level. So, you know, we have no plans for that at this point. Anything we, like that that would happen would be done either with us or with the community. It's going to be in the same world in the right way that no one's saying, like, for example, The Road. I'm terrified to see the movie. I'm not going to see the movie. Because I really, really like the book. And mm -hmm. I look at the movie trailers, and I think it's an action film, and I'm like, okay, I want to go see it. <laughs> you always see that kind of separation happening, I think, with most IPs as they get taken over by that. Because movies have a different goal, right? They have the, the four quadrants they have to hit. They have to appeal. If you're going to spend any amount of money making them, they, you have to appeal to so many different groups and stuff. And 
you know, uh, we like we like Left 4 Dead. We we want to keep growing it and doing things interesting in that world. One of the characters, Ellis, he uh, throughout the game, he starts telling the group uh, all these different stories. Uh, but someone always cuts him off and says, "There's no time for that now." Will we ever get to hear how one of his stories ends? <laughs> yeah, we should probably hook some of those up so they <laughs> finish occasionally. Actually, here, here, I think there is a couple in there in-game that are really rare mm-hmm. that he does give a little bit more information. But yeah, Ellis is uh, a fun character to write for. I like how uh, he's sort of set up as a dumb hillbilly, but then he comes up with brilliant ideas occasionally. Like in the first scenario, he has the idea of how they save the day. And, you know, you sort of play him against that type that he appears to be. The game is set in the sort of southeastern United States uh, with the states look, sort of looking like Louisiana did uh, post-Katrina. And in the game, a couple of the characters take uh, pot shots at FEMA during the game. So did anyone on the development team sort of live in New Orleans during Katrina and, and had to deal with the aftermath of that? Well, so no one actually lived down there after Katrina, but some of us have lived there during various periods. There's actually a couple of people who are from that area. I lived in New Orleans for a brief time in the 90s. But, you know, definitely we're familiar with that. We, when we purposely, though, while the characters are having some fun with CETA, our made-up agency, we're not trying to be political about the situation down there. We're not trying to be edgy or anything, right? Mm-hmm. I have great respect for that area down there. It has actually been down there in October. And I would say anyone listening, if you want to go experience a, a cool, really cool city, go to New Orleans because it still is really cool. And then take some time to go look around and realize that is not over. I got my hair cut that while I was down there. And the woman cutting my hair was telling me how she still lives in their neighbor's house because they can't get their house rebuilt yet. It's just they, sit, they live next to their destroyed home. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that in, in just like perfectly regular neighborhoods in the one section. You know, you'll just see this every 10th home, and not even that frequency. Besides, you know, the ninth Ward, it hit, hit other places, and it just really had a huge effect. I mean, you think they lost, I think they lost, what, 200,000 people? So any, anything with that, we treat with great respect. I really love the city and cannot encourage people enough to go down and check it out. Now, what kind of research did you guys have to do in order to make the survival aspect of the game seem so realistic? Did you guys go out to a shooting range and, like, shoot all these different guns to get a feel for how the characters would be using them? And, you know, did you take some of these melee weapons and sort of hack apart target dummies or anything like that? Um, Well, so the animators definitely, and the animators and the modelers definitely go down that route of really understanding it. Like, the gun modeler, well, I hate to call him a gun nut, um, (laughs) probably would be an accurate description, uh, Tristan. He just lives and breathes that and really understands that. But, you know, and all of this is, it also has to be about gameplay and how it feels in the game. And uh, you trade off often some element of realism for gameplay or for feel or for look. So it's always the back and forth. We definitely start kind of in the real world and then stray from there as we need to. Now, the new game, uh, at least to my group of online friends that I've been playing with, it, to us it seems like it's significantly more difficult than the first one, at least for us when we're playing with four humans and no AI to help out with their sharpshooting skills. Was that a conscious decision on your guys' part to make it more challenging for Left 4 Dead veterans, or did it just turn out that way because of like the new special infected and maybe you having to amp up the numbers to counteract the awesomeness of the melee weapons? Definitely, it's something we were aware of. We are nuts about statistics. And so we could compare actually the statistics of the people we bring in to play test Left 4 Dead 2 compared to the people who played Left 4 Dead 1 versus also at the time before release, the community of Left 4 Dead 1, you know, and we could look at deaths and whites. You know, I think there's a, there's a couple of hot spots that we're going to still look at. Obviously, advanced and expert people want to have this great challenge, and especially an expert, right? You want it to be really hard. You want it to be 
something that's a real challenge to you. But there's a lot of people who play Left 4 Dead on normal, and they'll play it with the same people every week, where it's a more social experience. It's not such about the challenge, but about the shared experience, about the social nature of the game. And for there, we're definitely looking at issues that come up in, in a couple of campaigns where there are some hot spots. Like we can, I can look right now at a map of Left 4 Dead and see where people die. Huh. See where there's a hot spot of, there's too many deaths here, what's going on here? Then you have to always make sure when you're looking at those kind of things of understanding why. Is it because we didn't have enough health before? Is it because we have too many commons here? Is it because the navigation is hard for people? Are people getting lost here? There's a multitude of reasons why people could be dying in a spot. So it's understanding that, and then we'll kind of revisit all those and take a look and see if there's anything we need to do. Speaking of the new special infected, do you guys have some sort of scientific rationale behind that within the you know sort of milieu of of, of Left 4 Dead? Like, um, is the virus just mutating or something like that? Is that like why we never saw them before? Correct, correct. Yeah, this is a little bit later in, in the Left 4 Dead world, and the um, virus continues to mutate and express itself in different ways. Now, in a, in a lot of zombie films and fiction, like you know, you never actually figure out why zombies came back uh in this case we know that it's a virus or something but do you think you know you guys will ever reveal like what actually happened with that we if will we learn anything about what caused the zombie apocalypse definitely we know why and we have mm-hmm. the entire backstory and everything how that gets metered out into games or into other formats going to be as we work on those things of does it make sense to do that then i think stopping all of gameplay so some old man can tell you about <laughs> some back thing that happened would be not that interesting in the world of the game of Left 4 Dead. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're asking about Hollywood before, there's other ways we like to talk about our games. In Team Fortress is an example. We have the movies. You know, we've done some of that with Left 4 Dead 2 already. So we're always open to talking about the world in different ways. So as we're moving forward, we'll keep looking at those and mm-hmm. keep looking then at, at drawing on that backstory that we do have. Yeah, one of the things I, I like about the game, uh, one of the cool little touches that's in there is uh, the graffiti that you guys have on the walls, like in the safe room, people writing silly messages to each other because of uh, the stupid things people do in a survival situation. And I, I always kind of pay close attention to those to see if there's any clues to what's going on there or anything, but uh, I haven't found anything yet. You haven't picked up anything? Because I've seen some people in the forums have gotten some little pieces together. Oh, okay, I'll have to look more closely, I guess. Well, I just got an HDTV, so I probably couldn't see that before. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. It does, it does make a difference, huh? Okay, now here's a question from one of my friends, uh, Eugene, who I kill zombies with sometimes. Um, he pointed out how, like, you know, in some reviews it was mentioned that Left 4 Dead 2 is the game that Valve always wanted to create in terms of difficulty in gameplay. Is that the case? Oh, I mean, every game that we're working on is the game we want to create. I mean, <laughs> we, were, we were really happy with Left 4 Dead 1 when it released. So, yes, in the sense of Every every game that comes out that we do, we, we don't have any outside pressure into making it something that isn't what we want it to be. So for that answer, yeah, yeah, I guess yes. And of course, we'll, we'll keep going. And if the community interacts with us and gives us feedback, you know, we always look to that as well. Is there anything in, in Left 4 Dead 2 that you wanted to include, but you couldn't fit in or uh, something that might appear in like an update or a future campaign or maybe even a third game down the line? Well, there's a couple things we experimented with, but this is the cool thing on Left 4 Dead 2 was this kind of shared vision by everybody on the team of what we wanted to do and how we wanted to tie things together. For example, the melee weapon and the damage model on the common infected and all these different parts where we did a lot of experimentation in the beginning and then did a lot of execution time. 
Left 4 Dead 2 actually has less of those moments than most of our games, just because if something wasn't working right out of the gate, like the charger didn't really work right out of the gate the way we wanted it to, we just keep iterating on it and melding it over into being what we want and kind of getting the desired effect out of it. And so when you iterate like that, you end up not leaving a lot of scraps on the table because you tend to take something that wasn't working and just iterate through it until it gets to what you want. Because we all had this shared idea of what we wanted in our heads as the end goal for the product. Anyone who does anything involved with zombie entertainment at some point is going to be asked, in the event of the zombie apocalypse, how do you think you would do? What would your weapon of choice be, and what's your zombie contingency plan? Uh, shotgun, head back to our office. We've got a lot <laughs> of food here, a lot of uh, water here stored up. We're actually in a complex that has a restaurant on the top, and I don't think zombies know how to operate elevators. <laughs> All right, good plan. So I, would definitely, I would definitely come here and last it out here for at least a little bit. What else are you guys working on out there? Like, what uh, what uh, sneak peeks maybe can you can you uh, offer? We really up? haven't announced anything yet. Um, so until we do, we kind of don't really like to talk about it. Um, you mm-hmm. know, just partially making sure we're we're on that path uh, to release. Uh, you know, I will say, Left 4 Dead 2 isn't done yet. Left 4 Dead 1 isn't done yet. Hmm. Um, there's still some things we're going to be doing in those worlds. So you know, we'll be talking about those in a little bit. Well, thank you very much for joining us on uh, Geeks Guide to the Galaxy chat. It was great talking to you. Oh, thanks. And that was our interview. Uh, Thanks again to Chet for joining us on the show. It was great having him. Yeah, man. uh, I was really kind of bummed. I was hoping I was going to be able to get him to give us some breaking news on on our first podcast here. You know, give us some some secret news that Valve had not released yet. But I'm not a, a wily enough interviewer, I guess, to get it out of him. You were he was just he was just going to be like, I was saving this important this, you know, this. This earth-shattering uh, announcement for Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, Half-Life 3, on its way. Actually, what I'm most interested in at this point, I think, is Portal 2. I'd, I'd heard rumors of Portal 2, and I don't, I don't know what the deal with that is. But, you know, we talked about Portal a little bit at the in the intro to the show, and uh, that game, man, just blew me away. Like, so, like I was so impressed with it. It's like, um, I mean, it's very short, and so it's kind of frustrating in that way because it was really, really fun to play, and I was so into it, but then it was over before I knew it, almost, you know, because uh, I think it's only about three hours of gameplay, or that's what somebody told me anyway, and that's what sort of got me to play it because... I played it at a time where I was I had some deadlines and I didn't want to jump into a game like Grand Theft Auto 4 which just like sucked a month of my life away from me um and and, uh, and so, from your friends yes and and from my friends <laughs> who, and, who yes, had to I, hear about the game yes yes how everything in New York reminded <laughs> me of Grand Theft Auto yes okay um but uh yeah so Portal doesn't take long to play through but it's like just so much fun and and as I was describing it earlier uh you'll know it does a lot of innovative things but um I'm really looking forward to what else they do with that franchise Cool so I mean one thing we we were going to talk about did you uh listen to this interview of the guy who called up the radio host pretending to be Gordon Freeman <laughs> No no what is that So it's it, this happened last last year I think I I remember hearing about it when it happened but you know the the main character in Half-Life is a scientist named Gordon Freeman and so, uh, so I, I'd never heard of this, this show. It's, it's some sort of, you know, crazy conspiracy show. And, and so, so this guy calls up and he's like, hi, you know, my name's Gordon. I work, I'm a scientist for the government and I've just seen a lot of really weird things going on, you know, uh, <laughs> and the guy, I mean, the caller, he's great. He doesn't go, he doesn't crack a smile at all. And the, the host is totally eating it up, and, and, and this, this, this caller just says, you know, I, I work at this, this government lab, and they're just doing all sorts of weird experiments, and there's this, 
this government guy and he's just I, I think he's following me around like every time i <laughs> see him you know he's just through some window or something i can't you know i can't get to him <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i was talking to my friend barney about it he he works with me there and and it, you know and anyone who, who's who's at all familiar with half-life will instantly recognize this but the, the host obviously is not familiar with half-life and this guy just goes on and on and and the, the host says, you know, well, what, what kind of technology are, are we talking about here? And, and the guy says, you know, it's, it's called portal technology, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, it's, it's just a riot. You should, uh, you know, Google this interview. And well, we'll, we'll, we'll have a link to it on the show notes yeah. on the, on tour.com. So you don't have to Google it. We'll have the link for you. All right. Cause we're cool like that. <laughs> Okay, so so during our interview, Chet was talking about, you know, John asked, uh, what's your zombie contingency plan? And Chet said, you know, he would grab a shotgun and, and head to the valve offices. And so I was, when he said that, I was thinking that, you know, I had always thought of, of a shotgun as a classic anti-zombie armament. It certainly would have been one of my first choices. But I, I watched an interview recently with Max Brooks, who wrote, he wrote World War Z, and he also wrote the Zombie Survival Guide. And he seemed to think a, a shotgun was not a good weapon, not a good anti-zombie weapon. Uh, I guess it depends to some extent whether you think that sound attracts zombies. You know, if sound attracts zombies, then weapons that make a lot of noise obviously aren't as good. But he was saying that uh, he didn't think a shotgun had good skull penetration. The, huh. the the buckshot sort of spreads out, and it does a lot of damage to your flesh, but doesn't penetrate your skull the way a, a bullet does. Well, I mean, I think it, it depends on what... I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a gun expert or anything, but I, I think it depends on what kind of uh, shells you're using, right? I mean, don't they have different types of shotgun shells like that? And some seem to blow up heads really good on in movies, so I don't know. But um, that's that's why we're all going to die, because we're going to base our survival skills on things we've learned from movies. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't necessarily disagree with Max 100%. I mean, I, I, I've said this to you before. You know, my number one weapon of choice is probably going to be an aluminum baseball bat, because I understand how to use it. You know, it's made for swinging. Uh, I've never tried to swing it at anyone's head, but I think I could figure out how to do that. And, you know aluminum bat it's going to be pretty resilient you know it's probably not going to break on you you know i don't know anything about guns but if i was going to take a gun I, I wouldn't take only a gun i would take the baseball bat and i would take a gun if i could i would take the shotgun because i think that's probably the weapon that an unskilled user has the best chance of hitting anything with and certainly stopping something with failing that only then would i take a, a handgun which you know kind of makes sense just because they're small and you can you know uh, how hard would it be to take a handgun along with you if you have that option yeah, so, see, see, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm still kind of, uh, I'm still considering the shotgun. I mean, like, <laughs> like you say, you don't need to aim very well uh, with a shotgun since it has, it's, you know, the, the buckshot spreads out. You can saw off the barrel, and then it has more maneuverability in close quarters. And it seems to me it has stopping power. I mean, the, the problem with a, a baseball bat or a katana, which is something Max mm -hmm. uh, advocates, is that I don't want to get that close to. I mean, to chop off a zombie's head with a katana, I mean, you have to get your forearm, it seems to me, awfully close to its mouth. It's okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Max recommends a katana? Oh, yeah, he he, he holds one up before a college really? audience, yeah. Okay, well, I wonder if that's why uh, Left 4 Dead uh, added the katana specifically, um, you know, into Left 4 Dead too. But, okay, see, my issue with uh, the katana or the machete or whatever, I think it would be very easy to injure yourself with such a weapon if you don't know how to use it. And I don't know about you, but I do not know how to use a katana or a machete. I've never held either. You know, they're both really sharp, deadly instruments. I don't know that I want to be swinging it with all my might at something like in a situation that I've never been in before. I think I would totally chop off my own leg. I might kill the zombie, but I'd be in bad situation as well. Well, in, in our interview, you know, we were talking about the, 
mall full of katanas and mm. uh, and gas cans. Uh, but but Max was pointing out that most katanas that you might just stumble across are not going to be real combat ready mm-hmm. weapons. They're they're not going to be sharp and mm-hmm. they're not going to be real swords. You know, with the uh, the blade really actually being built into the hilt, so that if you actually hit something with it hard enough, the the blade would just snap off from the hilt. Right. Um, so that's I mean that's definitely a factor to take into consideration when you, when you're oh, arm- yeah. when you're arming yourself. Yeah, I mean, basically, it would be almost impossible to actually find a, a weapon-grade katana, you know, unless you really know what you're doing. Because, like, I mean, if you go to if you go to Comic Con or whatever, and you see these people selling swords there, like, those are going to be complete bullshit swords. I don't even know where you would go to get a real sword. So that kind of eliminates katana from my weapon catalog, uh, as far as uh, survival goes. But so it seems like another factor we have to take into consideration is is whether we're talking about the living dead zombies or in the infected living say zombies because because mm-hmm. maybe chad is thinking of the infected living zombies like in in left for dead right those are mm-hmm. not the living dead right right and yeah they're uh uh they actually the, it's actually clever that in in left for dead 2 that one of the characters does make a comment like you know if he if these were real zombies and i forget what else he says but it's like uh when i was playing online with people somebody's like oh wow yeah i never even thought of that these are infected these are not dead people risen from the grave they're actually just infected people they just act like zombies yeah so, so presumably yeah. against them a, a shotgun would be just as effective as it would be against any ordinary person right you don't have to destroy their right. brain you just have to injure right, them right. badly enough to to start to to kill them right right yeah you don't have to destroy the brain that the game would be impossible if you did Although the brain uh, does work better to stop them than just blowing their body apart. But I'm thinking, you know, if if I had to go into a dark grocery store or something with narrow aisles between the shelves scavenging for canned food, I think I would want a shotgun in my hand. You know, something that's going to not rather than, say, a katana, you know, something that I'm just going to pull the trigger and mm-hmm. it's going to knock the zombie back away from me, even if it doesn't penetrate their brain. Just something that gives me some, mm-hmm. some room to, to run away or to take another shot or whatever. Right. No, I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, I'll do respect to Max, but um, I think I'm going to disagree on this one. I, I'm going to want a shotgun. Although, you know, maybe we should, like, you know, actually go find a shotgun somewhere, hold one, and shoot one so that we will we, we'll be more prepared. Because obviously that's going to be what we gravitate towards um, in that situation. It's a date. Yeah. Yeah, so during the interview, Chet was talking about how rather than trying to impose a story on players, how a lot of times the story will... You know, you just tell stories about what happened to you in the game. These situations that arose organically, just from the mechanics of, of gameplay. Uh, since you've you've played a lot more Left 4 Dead than I have, mm-hmm. do you have any sort of memorable stories that stick in your mind? Is oh, I remember the time we we did that. Yeah, you know the the thing that sticks foremost in my mind is so the, one of the other modes that we haven't discussed so far is there, there's a mode called versus mode, and in versus mode you play play with eight people or up to eight people and so you have two teams and one team is going to play the survivors and then the other team is going to play the infected science fiction author Stephen gould author of jumper that bastard he joined our group he made it sound like he was some noob and he takes control of like one of the uh like the smokers and he's just like killing everybody he's like a he's like a sniper he's like you know climbing up on top of these buildings we can't even see him and he's like lassoing us and strangling the shit out of us and so yeah, that was uh, that was quite a night. Uh, I feel like he bamboozled us into uh, putting him on a team with other good players, make, pretending to be a noob. Was there any money involved in this? I mean, <laughs> no, no. He uh, he sort of um, hustled us for no good reason, uh, just just for bragging rights, I guess. I'll get you for that, Steve Gould. <laughs> no, but when you when you say that about Steve Gould, that actually segues really nicely into my, my next question, which was going to be, you know, I, I just hear people talk about Left for Dead, and you know, you're playing with this person and that person, you're playing with Steve Gould, and 
I, I sometimes wonder if by not playing so much Left 4 Dead, I'm, I'm missing out on networking opportunities. <laughs> if you know, if I were to be a, a business executive, I would have to learn to play golf because so much uh, business is discussed. And if you want to be in the loop, you have to be on the golf course. And for fantasy and science fiction publishing, do you have to be playing Left 4 Dead to, to be in the loop? Uh, well, you know, it's funny you say that because uh, we have discussed this actually uh, when we were playing games a couple times. And I was like, oh, we shouldn't let this get out that we're all meeting like this all the time. We're going to get all these, uh, you know, up and coming writers or these uh, wannabes uh, who who just, you know, they're just going to try to befriend us and play Left 4 Dead with us so they can talk to us uh, for a couple hours uh, at a time. You know, it hasn't got to that point yet, but I mean, it is networking. I mean, I've spent a lot more time talking with some of these people than I would otherwise, certainly. Like a couple of the other people who I've been playing with, uh, like Tobias Bakel and um, a couple of people from Tor.com and, and Tor, like uh, Teresa DeLucci uh, works at Tor and does some stuff for Tor.com and Pablo Defendini, who's uh, sort of the big boss behind Tor.com. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I could totally see it being a networking opportunity. OK, so, you know, I asked Chad about what he thought some of the best written games were. Um, I have, you know, my own ideas. Uh, what are what are your ideas about just what games feature good writing? Uh, well, it's funny. When he was answering that question, I was kind of nodding, nodding along with him because a lot of the answers he gave were ones I would give. Did he mention um, what Modern Warfare or what game was he talking about? Yeah, the, the Call of Duty. Okay, Modern yeah, I, I haven't I haven't played those. But, you know, Bioshock, I would definitely say that. Grand Theft Auto uh, 4, anyway, I haven't really played the other ones. But, uh, I mean, I love the story of Grand Theft Auto 4. I mean, that's part of what kept me so enthralled with the game. I mean, it, it was fun anyway, but, I mean, it was like... It was like I was reading a novel and I had to and I wanted to get to the end of it. And so that's kind of one of the things that pushed me through uh, to the end of the game. Like Chet, um, you know, I'm I'm prone to picking things that I've been playing lately. And uh, I actually just started playing Fallout 3, which is probably kind of a surprise to some people because I edited um, an anthology of post-apocalyptic fiction. And Fallout 1 and 2 were like two of my favorite games of all time and, you know, started my interest in post-apocalyptic fiction. It was one of those games, like after my experience with Grand Theft Auto 4, I was like, okay, well, I know if I start playing Fallout 3, I'm probably going to lose a lot of time to it. And I don't know if I have time to do that right now. Uh, so it's actually, to my shame, I discovered like it had a little sticker on the on the case of Fallout 3, which I'd never even opened. It's um, like, you know, do not sell before October 28, uh, 2008. I'm like, oh, God, I, I waited more than a year. I'm a year <laughs> behind the times. Yeah, so I mean, I just started playing that, but I mean, I can already tell you right now. I mean, it's 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 got a lot of the a lot of great writing. I mean, um, it, it doesn't have as uh, polished dialogue and so forth as as some of these other games, but I mean, the story is great and the world building is just like so amazing. Um, I mean, part a lot of that is obviously uh, partially due to the visuals, which are like just completely arresting and like totally creepy. You know, just this post-apocalyptic landscape, everything destroyed around you, and these like gigantic bugs just like skittering up to you and making all these creepy sounds it's it was freaking me out you know when when you mention fallout i mean i wouldn't list it as one of one of the best written games but you know we're both uh fans of this is old school the wasteland uh, mm -hmm. rpg which it was one of the first uh i think it was the first uh, role-playing game i played that wasn't fantasy mm -hmm. uh it's a sort of for people who don't know, it's a sort of post-apocalyptic survival kind of uh, role-playing game. But there was just a moment in that game that, that's always stuck, a moment of storytelling in that game that's always stuck with me. You know, right near the beginning, your band of mercenaries comes to this sort of fortified compound. And uh, this kid says that he uh, lost his dog and he wants you to go find his dog. And so you, you leave the town and there's a cave nearby. And so you explore this cave. And in this cave, you find this kid's dog and it's rabid and it attacks you and you blow it away with your, <laughs> your m16s and things 
And then you come back to the town and the leaders of the town say, you know, thanks for killing that rabbit dog. We're a lot safer now. And then as you're leaving, the kid, you see the kid again and he says, you killed my dog. I hate you. And this was just so uh, antithetical to everything you'd been taught by games to expect mm -hmm. that you're like, well, wait, I completed the quest, right? You're like, I must have done something wrong. And so mm -hmm. you go back and try to do it again. And, and, and it just turns out, no, it's, it's just this really sad situation that the only thing you can do is, is kill this rabid dog and the kid's going to hate you for it. And, and you feel terrible about it. And, and just that a game could make you that, that, sort of, that sort of storytelling, that the game can make you feel that kind of emotion. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I, I forgot about that. And I actually remember Wasteland very well. I uh, I mean, that's where I stole my title from for my anthology. So, yeah, I mean, I remember staying up all night playing that thing. So, I mean, that's really what started me on Postapocalyptic. And then Fallout 1 and 2 sort of fostered the interest and eventually pushed me, you know, to, to read more of the fiction. Well, so so one of my, my, my uh, choices was Ron Gilbert's Secret of Monkey Island, which is just a brilliantly written game. It's, uh, it's, it's just laugh out loud funny. It's actually, I guess there's, they, they just did a remake of it. So if you haven't played it, you should definitely uh, try to get your hands on, on the remake. It now has, you know, full voice cast and pretty graphics and, and everything. Um, they, uh, if, you've, if you like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, they're essentially uh, a complete ripoff of Monkey <laughs> Island. Uh, I actually, I didn't know this, but I found out that one of the guys who wrote Pirates of the Caribbean had been hired by Steven Spielberg to write a Monkey Island movie. And so, so they had, he had written this, and they hmm. had even done, um, you know, concept art for it and stuff, which you can see online. Um, but it never uh, got got made. And and so, I mean, obviously, there's there's a, a big influence there. And and the the secret of Monkey Island, in turn, is was uh, massively influenced by the Tim Powers novel on Stranger Tides, uh, which is now being adapted into the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie. So it's just this big incestuous circle of <laughs> influences. But at last, Tim Powers gets his due after getting ripped off all these years. Now we'll finally get some credit and money. Yeah, one would hope. Yeah, we hope. Uh, uh, Good luck, if, Tim. And if you don't know, uh, if you don't know Tim Powers, you should definitely check out his novel, The Anubis Gates. It's just one of the the most fun novels I've read. Another game I was going to mention was Richard Garriott's Ultima series. Just, oh yeah, that was that had great writing. I mean, that was a fascinating world to explore. This is a it's sort of a fantasy role playing game, and the first three were. Just sort of standard kill the monsters, kill the evil wizard and or monster at the end, uh, kind of uh, dungeon crawl things. And what happened was that he started getting all this hate mail from uh, people accusing him of, uh, you know, leading their kids to Satan or whatever. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, this is back in the 80s, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and uh, Ultima games. They were sort of the, the Harry Potter of, of the day in terms of attracting, you know, just drawing the kooks out of the woodwork. And he was also, you know, so so on the one hand, Richard Garriott was getting all this hate mail, and on the other hand, he was getting all this fan mail from kids who were who were loving the game, and this all sort of caused him to sit back and say, you know, I have this forum, in effect, maybe I should use it to do something constructive, and and so he decided, and and how people were playing the games was how you would play most role playing games, you just kill everybody <laughs> and steal everything hmm. that you can, and just try to acquire as much power and and wealth as you can. And so he decided for Ultima 4 that you were going to have to not just be a good fighter, but you were going to have to be a good person to win the game. And so in each town, there was some standard fantasy quest thing you had to do. But then you would also subtly be tested to see whether you were a good person. Yeah, Fallout 3 kind of does something similar. Um, I don't remember if the first two did, but it certainly uh, the, in the new one, it certainly um, your actions have consequences. And you can kind of play the game as a good person or you can play the game as a bad person, or I guess you can kind of play it in between. But um, like you get karma for doing good things and, and like there's these sort of um, 
what kind of person you are is going to change the way the game plays out because certain people will talk to you if you're like sort of a down and dirty scumbag because they're also scumbags and but then if you were a good person they wouldn't talk to you and then you know vice versa yeah, and, and speaking of, of Fallout and, and Wastelands, uh, your anthology, I mean, you, you edited this whole anthology of post-apocalyptic fiction, and uh, Chet was mentioning Cormac McCarthy's novel The Road um, as being sort of an influence on them. And, and now I guess that's being just been turned into a movie with Viggo Mortensen. What did you think of The Road as post-apocalyptic fiction? Uh, well, I haven't seen the movie, so I can only comment on the book. I don't know. I mean, I, I thought it was okay. I certainly don't think it's the great masterpiece that the world at large seems to think. I mean, I wonder if a lot of the people who have lavished so much praise on it have basically never read other post-apocalyptic novels. I've read a ton, and I've read a ton of short stories, and having thoroughly explored this genre prior to reading The Road, I don't really see all that much in it that is, you know, new or, or all that interesting. You could say that, oh, well, you know, it's written in a certain style that, you know, evokes this or that. I mean, I don't know. It's His style didn't actually do much for me. I actually, I tried to read it when it first came out and I, and I put it down because I wasn't that interested in it. And uh, I only went back later to it because so many people had said how wonderful it was. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I gave up too quickly. And so I tried it again. And I did finish it the second time around, but I was never enthralled with it. Probably the only reason I finished it is because it is a pretty short book. It's not like a, a mammoth doorstop, which I, I wouldn't have stuck through that. You know, I mean, I think there's certainly plenty of other books that you should read if you haven't read a post-apocalyptic novel rather than The Road. Um, and then maybe if you read everything else, then you can read it. But it's not essential by any means, I don't think. Yeah, I, I sort of had kind of the same reaction. I just thought it was sort of average. You know, after after I, I read it, I, I just, I was wondering what people were praising about it so highly. So I actually went onto Amazon and read almost all the reviews, uh, of, of which there were, I don't know, a couple hundred at the time. And my take on it was that, as as, as you were saying, that people were more likely to, to enjoy it if they hadn't read a lot of previous post-apocalyptic fiction. Just the idea of a post-apocalyptic scenario is so interesting that if it's new to you, people are just like, wow, this is great. Mm -hmm. um, and But a lot of people were like me and you, I guess, on Amazon saying, you know, I've read a lot of science fiction and this just didn't seem like anything new. Um, but then the other thing I thought was interesting was that it, it seems like people liked it a lot more if they had kids, um, mm -hmm. that there was just something about the theme of you know going through anything and doing anything to protect your child that just resonated more with people mm -hmm. who had kids. A lot of people mentioned that, um, you know, and I don't have kids. So maybe if, you know, if someday I do have kids and I reread it, maybe it'll strike a chord with me that it doesn't currently. It kind of reminded me of, um, I read an author, I, I don't remember who now, talking about reading Stephen King's Pet Cemetery when this guy was in college and just thinking, oh, this, this book isn't scary at all. And then rereading it when he had kids and finding it terrifying and that, almost all good supernatural horror the supernatural horror is is kind of a a metaphor almost or a stand-in for some real life horror and in pet cemetery the real life horror is not being able to protect your kids from bad things happening to them so you know maybe uh, maybe there's something to that but you know when i think about post-apocalyptic fiction i think of john Wyndham's day of the triffids i think of uh, uh george r stewart's earth abides and harlan ellison's a boy and his dog can't you go for Leibowitz? by Walter Miller. That's my number one pick. Although Earth Abides is not far behind, and, and certainly Wyndham is great as well. I mean, any any sort of uh, top list I made uh, would have to include many of them. 
like uh, I, I frequently say, like uh, I, I sort of have my top five books of all time, you know, sort of sketched out in my head. I mean, they change a little bit, but like number one and number two, like number one's been The Stars My Destination by Alfred Bester for quite a while, which is not relevant to this conversation, but it's number one. And number two has been for a long time, A Canticle Flebowitz, just because it's like, I don't know, it's, 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 it's really impossible to describe what makes it so powerful. But I mean, it's, it's sort of about like the cyclical rise and fall of civilization and uh, how, how we're sort of doomed to repeat our own mistakes just by nature. And uh, I mean, it's not a happy-go-lucky book by any stretch, but, uh, you know, then again, neither is The Road. It's, the Road is probably the bleakest book I've ever read, maybe other than Canticle for Leibowitz. I mean, I like, I like Canticle a lot better. See, another one, another one I was going to mention was Alfred Bester's, actually speaking of um, mm. Stars My Destination, other, uh, it's a short story, Adam and No Eve, mm-hmm. which actually The Road reminded me of a lot. The premise of that one is that there's this guy and he's built a, a rocket ship using this experimental fuel and everyone tells him not to do it because this fuel is so insanely dangerous. Uh, but he does it anyway. And, and during the launch, some of the fuel leaks or whatever. And to, it's a sort of universal binding agent like, uh, like Ice-9, if you read uh, Vonnegut's uh, Cat's Cradle. And so uh, it destroys, it, is, it essentially turns the whole earth into a rock. Uh, so everybody dies, except this one guy who, who lands in his, his shuttle. And so um, in the story, he's kind of walking through this desolate, lifeless terrain, uh, seeking the ocean. And he doesn't know why he wants to, uh, to find the ocean, but it's just kind of this, this, uh, this feeling he has. And, and by the end of the story, he has reached the ocean, and he's realized that if he dies in the ocean, the biological matter that makes up his body will start life over again. Hmm. And and that's sort of, you know, a sort of mind-blowing science fiction idea. And so I was sort of, I sort of felt like, like reading The Road, I, there was nothing like that at the end. The, the end felt very just conventional to me. It, it is it is kind of interesting, though, um, with The Road, like, garnering all this critical acclaim, you know, won the Pulitzer Prize and, and you know, numerous other things, was bestseller for a long time. Of all the science fiction sort of subgenres, post-apocalyptic fiction has always been like the easiest crossover to mainstream. Um, I mean, there's a number of classics of this subgenre that were initially published as mainstream and were mainstream successes, not science fiction novels. Like, I believe uh, Earth Abides actually is one uh, by George R. Stewart, although he, he certainly wrote several other books that were, you know, science fictional. He could have easily been classified as science fiction writer. But Pat Frank, uh, you know, Last Babylon, that was a mainstream book, uh, On the Beach by Neville Shute. You know, another one. So there's this sort of long tradition of that uh, actually going all the way back to the you know beginning of the of the subgenre with the, the Last Man by Mary Shelley. It seems obvious why, because of any science fictional concept, the world ending, that's really a concept anybody can grasp, um, especially if you keep it very low um, speculation like the road does, which is just it's just like, OK, the world the world is gone. Mostly everybody's dead. These people are surviving. I mean, that's all you need to know about the setup, the scenario. And, you know, that's like immediately graspable by basically anyone who knows how to read. So it, I find it interesting that uh, like like us and a lot of other science fiction readers don't respond to it. But uh, but the mainstream does. You know, it's actually funny. There was uh, there was at least one mainstream reviewer um, who reviewed The Road and seemed to think that there were zombies in it. <laughs> and I was like, what book did he read? You know, um, it's like if there were zombies in The Road, it would be so much better. <laughs> I think it's just because like there's cannibals and he assumed because they wanted to eat flesh that they were zombies. I just thought that was kind of funny. I was going to say, you know, um, when Chet was talking about the uh, the trailer turning him off from the movie, it was funny because I had exactly the opposite reaction. I, I thought the trailer looked pretty cool. And if I if I hadn't read the book, I might have I might have gone to see the movie. But I sort of felt like everything 
interesting that I remembered from the book was in the in the trailer was in this you know two minute trailer. So what what happens in the rest of the movie? I just imagine that dad and his kid sitting around on the grounds, and the kid asks dumb questions, and the dad says, "I don't know." <laughs> That's you know yeah. for for another hour or something. I don't know. Yeah, throughout the book, they have the same conversation like twenty five times. Yeah. Even though I was very lukewarm on the book, I, I kind of am interested to see it um, just because like I, I kind of want to see the visuals. I want to see how they depict you know the post-apocalyptic landscape. I mean, that's always one of the sort of um, draws of, of the genre on film, I think. The new I Am Legend movie with Will Smith, I mean, I think that's everything that that did right has to do with the, how it depicted the life post-apocalypse. You know, and and the visuals, especially uh, like, you know, seeing New York completely devoid of people like that. That was very well done and creepy. Uh, the movie has lots and lots and lots of other problems, but let's not go there. OK, and so uh, I think the end of the world is going to be the end of our podcast. So thanks, everyone, for joining us on episode one of The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes, or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or DavidBarCurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Deadspill 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.